it's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Hey folks, welcome to a very special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I am talking with Terry Hayes, all about his new book, The Year of the Locust, but more than that, talking to him about his amazing career in Hollywood and elsewhere. He is the writer behind things like The Road Warrior, aka Mad Max 2, Beyond Thunderdome, Dead Calm, Vertical Limit, From Hell, Payback. I had a wonderful time talking with Mr. Hayes, and I hope that you have as much fun listening to it. Enjoy the interview. How did you even get your start when it came to the writing? My late mother always said it's because I couldn't hold a job. And uh, <laughs> that's the truth. It was a very strange and quite confronting experience. I just thought you're a very impressionable age, and I was born in England, and Australia was a very different country to more village in England. and. So luckily I learned to read at a young age. So I took great refuge in reading and storytelling and what have you. And so it became part of my DNA that one day I was going to be a writer. Of course, that's a wonderful thing being young because you have no idea whether things are possible or impossible. So I thought, well, there's a lot of books in the library. You go up to the bookstore and there's even more books. They can't be that hard. And it just became what I was going to do. Now, yeah, I have four children of my own and the daughter that I'm going to go and watch riding in a minute will be, she was much the same. From the first moment she was ever put on a horse, that was what she was going to do. Some people are lucky. They know their purpose in life. So I went to high school, went to very good high school, Dublin high school, but known in Australia as the selective high school for highly intelligent and promising young people. So clearly they made a terrible mistake, Mike. And uh, But I slipped in. I got in under the wire. And you can't go You can't go and talk to the careers advisor and say, I'm going to be a writer. He'll tell you that I was an idiot. So I kept it very much to myself. So I became a journalist because that was what I thought was a near-run thing to writing. So I became a journalist and loved it. Absolutely love. I was at college and I was going full time college, full time job for a very prestigious newspaper group. When I was 21, they said, Do you want to go to the New York office and be a foreign correspondent? To this day, I think I'm the youngest foreign correspondent that Australia's ever appointed. And I went to New York. I lived opposite the Dakota where John Lennon and Yoko Ono were living, had an apartment there. But the best thing, Mike, best thing, never to be repeated in my life. 21, alone in New York, living on the west side, 20 meters from Central Park, and they gave me a credit card. They gave me a company credit card. Now, can you, and now you in that moment, I was very young, but I knew in that moment the company was going to go broke. Any corporation was stupid enough to do that clearly being run by the wrong people. I had the time of my life, not because of the credit card, but because it was a very small office. We were reporting on really major events and you could go anywhere you want. We had to do is think up a story. Uh, you'd think up a story in San Francisco, you'd fly to San Francisco. I spent an enormous amount of time in Washington. I did all right at that, better than all right maybe. And they made me a political an investigative reporter, and then I became a political bureau chief. And that, I was, I don't know, 28, 29. And I had a decision to make. Would I go into the management of a newspaper or would I be a writer? I decided to go for the writing side of things, but I became a, a the producer in Australia's, one of Australia's two top rating current affairs programs. Then a guy walked into my office one day. We had a mutual friend in common, and he said, 
Maury has suggested I see you. He'd read a book by Pauline Kael, in which best screenwriters in the world came from journalism. I was a journalist. I had some sort of profile. And he said, so I thought I'd meet you. I was, oh, that's good. Greek guy, lovely man, bit overweight, but um, who am I to talk? And I warmed to him very much. Told me he was a doc. Okay. And I've directed a film. I thought, well, you're a bit stupid. Seven years, seven years study, high income, regular life, and you want to be a film director? He said, do you want to see it? I said, sure. We get in his car, this tiny little Ford laser or whatever it was. Terrible driver. Awful driver. God, I'm glad I've got a doctor on board. I need it pretty soon. He drives me out to the suburbs. This is in Melbourne and Australia. He drives me way out to the suburbs. In the living room of somebody to this day, I have no idea who it was. He was sleeping on the couch. So he puts this movie on, 17-inch black and white TV, and he shows me this movie. But there's whole bits missing. He can't hear half the dialogue. And he says to me at the end of it, what's your thing? Now, I didn't know anything about movies, but I intuitively knew how you operate. I said, oh, very interesting. I didn't say I was good or incomprehensible or anything. I said, so we had a chat about it. I had no idea what we were talking about. And he said to me, what do you think of the lead actor? I said, oh, he's good. He said, he's young. I said, early 20s or whatever he was. And I, I said, he's a very handsome guy. He said, yeah, he is very handsome. It's going to be a movie star. I said, oh, really? I said, well, you'd know more about that than me. Thinking, you wouldn't have the first, nobody can even follow this movie. I said, anyway, what's his name? He said, oh, his name's Mel Gibson. He hasn't done anything. And the movie was the first Mad Max. And the guy that was showing it to me was George Miller. Dr. George Miller has gone on to win a few Oscars. So my, the lesson from all of this is, what do I, what do I? Nothing. And William Goldman, great screenwriter, said that's the most important thing to learn about Hollywood. Nobody knows anything. And I am living proof of that. That's how it all started. I became a screenwriter. I made things which, thankfully, were very successful and highly regarded, at least by me and my kids, maybe nobody else, but I liked them. Not all of them, but I liked them. And then I went to Hollywood. I I you know, wrote some movies there, wrote a lot that were uncredited, wrote some that never got made, decided it was time to do what that five-year-old kid had wanted, write a book. So I did. And that was That's I Am great. Pilgrim, and now I've written the next one. I've always been curious about The Road Warrior, as we call it over here, or Mad Max 2, as yes. you called it in Australia. It was such a different film. How did that kernel of idea even get started and, and become such a, a wider world than what we saw in the original Mad Max. Ah, uh, that's a very interesting question. That really is, because that was deliberate on the part of George and myself. As I mentioned, I was working as a radio producer, and I came up with a brilliant idea that we should do a War of the World style thing, where we would tell people that this was all invented, but this is how it might break as a news story. So myself and the host have both been pretty high-level journalists, so we had a good idea of what had come over the AP wire and how it worked out. So we did this thing, and it all starts in the Middle East over oil. And then there's an attack on some American assets. Lots of bad things happen. And within three hours, the world's really facing Armageddon. The Russians are getting ready to launch. The Americans are going to do a preemptive strike. And of course, every five or three minutes, we're telling people, this is not true. This is just an idea of how it might unfold. So be scared, because this might one day help. Because nobody heard that, because that's the public. Everybody's hearing the Russians are going to launch. I don't. I think. I can't say for sure, but I think to this day it holds the record number of complaints to the Australian Broadcasting Authority. I guess in retrospect, you're going to be proud of 
We managed by clinging on by our fingernails and the ratings, of course, went through the roof. It was good news. We managed to hold on to our job, but I learned a very interesting thing from it. How much unexpressed fear there is out there about an apocalyptic event leading to a post-apocalyptic world. So I said to George, why don't we take Mad Max and project it into something which you established in the first movie, but something a little bit more extreme, something a little bit more, a bit, a little more frightening. And, but we're going to have to motivate it. He said, let's go for it. We did. And yeah, it's difficult because any story that you write is very difficult. But I got the job of putting together the opening montage of Road Warrior because I was having to write the narration. So I was having to write the narration about two mighty warrior tribes going to war. So I had to write that and get the images to match to it. Then, of course, George is visual genius in some ways. So he'd come in and give me a hand and then tell me that I'd lost my mind and why don't we do this and why don't we do that. And so all the time I'm trying to craft the narration, make images fit the narration. So that became the opening of Road Warrior, which I think even now is fairly well regarded as a piece of filmmaking, all credit to George, and pretty reasonable sort of piece of writing. And that so Road Warrior differed quite an amount from Mad Max. Of course, it wasn't hurt by the fact that Mad Max had made a lot of money, and therefore we had a much bigger budget. They were still tiny Americans, but we had a lot more money to work with. Mel Gibson was, Mad Max had helped him a lot, and he was on the brink of stardom. Mm-hmm. A woman called Nola Morris did the costumes, did a brilliant job. She was, to me, one of the most talented. It been my privilege to work with. Dean Samler was the cinematographer, won the Academy Award for Dances with Wolves. A number of other people that worked on the film also went on to win Academy Awards. I didn't, but then everybody ignores the writer. Nobody cares. <laughs> no, they won award. They won the, the Oscar for later in their career, but it showed you how talented they were and also how that film opened the door for so many great careers. I'm really proud. Mine too. I, I mean, make none mistake. Mine too. And and George's, of course. And so, yeah, it was, it, it was a pivotal event in a lot of people's lives. And I, many months later, I sat in a movie house not far from where I'd been a foreign correspondent, 100 yards up the road, and sat there and I was showing Road Warrior. And I'm sitting there watching it. There's three guys in front of their dad and his two late teenage sons. And the, the movie's coming to an end and the father says, wow, where the hell did that movie come from? And one of the sons says, it's Australian. Says, no, it's not. No, you're wrong. And the other, yeah, you're wrong. They can't be Australian. And I make things like that. And the other kid says, yes, they do, because there it is. And I led forward and I said, to be rude, but yeah, it's Australian. And they said, are you Australian? I said, yeah. They said, well, you must be mighty proud. And I said, yeah, I am. Got up and walked out. I didn't tell them. I didn't, I, no, that vain and silly. But yeah, but I put them right. It was an Australian movie and it was unlike any Australian movie I think that we'd seen. And, and America responded and the rest of the world responded accordingly. Hey, I got one thing to <laughs> my life. How was that transition for you going from writing articles and writing pieces for the radio into writing screenplays? Was that pretty natural for you? No, I'm not sure it's natural for anyone, really. When I was the radio producer, I was really highly paid. The radio, especially back then, was extremely lucrative. The companies that owned the radio stations were making money hand up chest and they were willing to pay people who they thought could deliver ratings. So I was, was young, unmarried, and, and there was a fair amount of social problems associated with the program and what have you. And you, you got paid extraordinarily well. well. After I'd seen Mad Max, George said to me, do you want to write a screenplay? 
Oh, yeah, sure. I was under the mistaken belief because he made a film that he knew what he was doing. And it was a terrible shock to me. And I told him, you know, it was a terrible shock to me three or four months later to realize he, he knew about as much as I did. We we're both lost, completely lost. That was frightening. But I said to him at one stage, many months after this, I said, oh, George, I don't want to be difficult about this. How much do I get paid for doing this? He said, oh, we should talk about that. She said, you'll get $25,000. Now, that was a fraction I got paid. I got, I'm on $25,000. So I said, oh, is that all right? I said, oh, I guess I'll be able to eat. I don't know about the rent, but I'll be able to eat. And he said, oh, yeah, but it's only 25000 if the movie gets made. I said, oh, okay. We got to finish the screenplay. Finance. I said, oh, okay. I said, how much is it if it's not paid? He said, oh, nothing. So I said, oh, that's not so good. He said, oh, can you still do it? I said, sure. I did it. And I'm not telling stories out of school here, but they changed the deal later on. And I remember the day I got a check for a million dollars. It was back then a lot of real. I'd never felt bad about it. I gambled everything. I gambled. And it came up. 99 times out of 100, it would. But there was something in me about being a right that I wasn't going to let go of. I knew this was the opportunity. And every 100 screenplays written, I think it's lucky if one is made. But I, I took a chance. And I say to my kids, I say to them all the time, opportunity doesn't make an appointment. It doesn't knock on your door. You turn around and it's there. And you grab it or you don't. I grabbed it. I don't know why. I often think that it's to do with that frightened five-year-old that I knew one day something would happen. And I'd worked very hard as a journalist for, to make a career for myself. This was nothing like that. This was a real opportunity to try something. But as I said, I didn't know anything about it. I found out George didn't know anything about it. He said, oh, no, I said, I got Mad Max and said, I said, what did you think Mad Max was compared to your vision for it? So 25% maybe, maybe less, probably less. I said, oh, he said, the story, he said, the story is really derived from other movies. He said, we can't do that this time. He said, we're on our own. Oh my God. Having no money, no prospect making anything. The land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And I'm following George around, thinking he knew what he was doing. And then I find out he's as blind as I am. But we, he's an extremely intelligent man, highly intelligent. And yeah, we had a lot of interesting conversations. I'm not saying I was intelligent, but we had a lot of interesting conversations. And we stumbled around and we came up with Road Warrior, which was a pretty good story told in 90 minutes and brilliantly directed, acted, and split the transition. I don't know, I've written a lot of screenplays. I've written a couple of books of a quarter of a million words each. I'll be the first person to tell you, I don't know. I'm still groping in the darkness. Yeah, and maybe that's the way it should be. Maybe if I thought I knew everything, it'd be boring. Every day is a learning experience. Every day I'd think to myself, God, geez, God, I didn't think of that. So, it, I did. so I'm still here, still standing. I've still got a seat at the table. They're still dealing me cards, trying to win. <laughs> so not only are you a screenwriter, but you moved into producing pretty quickly after The Road Warrior with, what was it, The Dismissal, I believe, was one of your first writing and producing credits. Yeah, Mike, if you're totally unqualified for it, if you're uneducated, have no idea of a career path, and are a completely lost individual, you should go to Hollywood and hang a sign on the door saying producer. Because in a lot of in a lot of cases, they have no idea what they're doing and nobody else knows what they're doing or not doing. But it sounds better than going to the latest fashionable restaurant and saying, I'm unemployed. Every waiter you meet serving stuff is wants to be an actor and everybody is sitting at one of those other tables 
who tells you they're a producer, they're unemployed too. I, through the Road Warrior experience and dealing a lot with movies, I realized that it's not that hard to be a producer. There is have some idea of what you're doing, some sort of vision, and be willing to tell other people and explain to them with some degree of clarity what you're looking for. And uh, look, all of the stuff that was produced by me was done in conjunction with George and a guy called Doug Mitchell, who handled all the business affairs, as well as yeah, being a creatively very interesting and knowledgeable person. So I didn't have to worry about how much money we were spending, except it was always too much. Doug would always say, can't everybody bring a cup lump to, to a brown bag lunch to set? Because look at the cost of this catering. <laughs> Be right. But so I could handle all the creative side. And with a lot of the things, they'd been written by me. So I had a very clear idea of what I was thinking. And or how I'd imagined it. So it was a natural evolution. And uh, my kids, God bless them, but unpleasant people, really. No, no, the two boys are late teenagers and the girls are a little bit old, early 20s. Yeah, they're not very polite. And they say, oh, Dad, your problem is you're a control freak. Now, this is clearly not true. This is, nothing could be... I am the most relaxed, easygoing, get along to uh, go along to get along, whatever it's saying is. It appears that my vision of myself may not be entirely accurate. And uh, so I was in a good place to say to me, I wrote the death thing. Let's try it this way. And that, but I did make always one really good decision. I, I worked with direct who were highly talented and decent human beings. That was the important. I don't think I ever had harsh words, really harsh words, with anybody that I was the producer on something that they directed. Uh, yeah, Phil Noyce directed Dead Car with Nikki, with Nick, Nicole Kidman, and I'd known Nicole for a number of years. My idea that she played that role. Phil went on to do quite a few films with Harrison Ford and Michael Caine, a lot of well-regarded movies. And Phil and I would be friends to this day, as I am, I think, with everybody that I work. There's no need for this pulling behavior in Hollywood all the time. It's not necessary. It's not. It, but you've got to make sure that you cast your director and your crew correctly. Everybody gives a lot of attention to the casting of the actor. Yeah, that's good. But there's that other side of the coin. And I'm not a, I have strong views on this, but I'm not a prima donna. And I hate that behavior. And nobody I've worked with outside of, uh, behind the camera has ever been guilty of that. And that sets the tone. That sets the tone for the entire production. If they know that professionally you're serious and we're on a tight schedule and there's a hell of a train coming down the track behind us and it's going to run us over, then people respond. I've heard awful about people I've worked with. It's never like with us. And yeah, I think it comes from how do you behave yourself? I don't throw tantrums. I don't pick up stuff off the craft services table and chuck it at people. I don't have screaming fits on the set and I wouldn't expect anybody else to do it. I did have an experience on a movie that I wrote, Cab, I didn't produce, Martin Campbell was directing, he'd just come off a couple of uh, Bond pictures. He does Zorro, Catherine Cedar-Jones, very good movie. And uh, he said one day I was standing on set, one of the actors started to tell the other, the other actors what they should do. So I would just take a couple of minutes break and uh, he said to us very well, wasn't that or anybody like yeah, but well he said, anyway, we'll just take a short break. When so and so has finished directing, I'll come back on and maybe we'll have a go my way. Everybody, oh, sorry. And Martin's a very fighting sample. 
of a non-hysterical person, but an but a perfectionist and a very fine. Yeah, so I'm lucky. I never had to work with the lunatic, but that's been a choice. I hear stories all the time. You think, oh, don't think I want to go there. Thanks very much. You mentioned some of the unproduced screenplays. And I read your screenplay for Planet of the Apes, and I was curious how that came about and what your experience was on that. What was it like? Was it any good? I seem to remember because I read honest, a few. It was the one. Was it the one where you used mRNA to travel back in time? Yeah, yeah mitochondrial yeah. DNA. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, it was a very interesting take to do that because you had to do the time travel thing somehow, and outer space is played out so i thought that was an interesting way of doing it It it's almost like altered states yeah it came about because i was working on a movie called from hell which was made with johnny depp the hughes brothers directed that great guy (laughs) a real fun they said i was the only non-racist person they'd ever met in hollywood it's a bit of a sad indictment i thought (laughs) i thought oh okay it never occurred to me because i've never had the experience that they'd heard. They said, oh, you seem to be as unpleasant to us as you are to everybody else. I said, oh, I guess that constitutes being non-racist. He said, yeah, everybody leads over backwards to help us or to not offend. So oh, I'm Australian, but all right now. And that, no, they were great guys. So I was working on From Hell, and it was produced by a guy called Don Murphy, who'd done Natural Born Killers and a number of other things, and ended up being a producer on all the Transformer movies. But anyway, we had done that, and he said to me one day, Oliver Stone, who I admire enormously, but Oliver Stone is interested in producing and possibly directing a remake of Planet of the Apes. Would you be interested in writing? So I said, sure. And because, again, you don't want to work with the idiots, do you? And an Ollie Stone is certainly not in that category. Highly intelligent man, very good filmmaker and a great writer, a great film. And so I launched into it and I, I felt very confident that, that Oliver Stone would understand where we were trying to go. The, the problem with movies is they want you to write a script in 12 weeks and they want it to be brilliant. That's just never possible. And then, uh, yeah, now and again, somebody might hit the mother load, but that's like winning Powerball. That's not a business plan, is it? Oh, what's your business? I'm going to buy a ticket this weekend. I'm going to win Powerball. Then I'm going to invent the internet. And I, oh, yeah, all right. And good luck. I was very confident. So it was an interesting screenplay, and I was excited by the project. It's a great movie. And... It's a very, the, the original. Oh, the remake's very good too. The first remake was very good. But you've got to try to push out. And the problem with movies is that whatever happened last week becomes the conventional wisdom for this week. Everybody's looking for who invented a bomb that was bigger than the atom bomb because of Oppenheimer. We're going to be inundated with bloody movies about toys because of Barbie and that. None of them are going to do any business because everybody's had that experience. Can't tell that. So you can't anticipate. You can choose your filmmakers. You can't choose how you're doing with the studios. So anyway, turn the script in, and we have a meeting at the studio. All of us there, Don Murphy, myself. I don't know some of the the spear carriers, the featured extras from the studio to make up the numbers so they can outgun. They need turns. I know he was running executive vice president of the studio at the time, but I had also towards him, so we'll leave his name out of it. But anyway, said, now we have this meeting, and he says, you know what's wrong with this grip? Oh, interesting. Always, we don't all our own conversation about what's wrong with it. So you know what's wrong with this grip? No. He said, needs a baseball game. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, what, this goes back to the Mad Max one days. What do you think of the film, Terry? Oh, it's interesting. Folks, <laughs> well, what we need is a baseball. Yes, that's interesting. Why? Oh, wouldn't it be great if the apes play a baseball game against the humans? 
possible? I guess that would be. You can hear all these stories about people going into studio meetings and having terrible yelling matches and telling them not to screw in my work and you're an idiot. You're in the studio say you're an untalented POS. I don't know any first-hand account of that. It's generally done at a very polite level, everybody nodding a lot. Oh, yes, interesting. And that, so I said, oh, yeah, got a game between the apes and the humans. Why? Why would we have this baseball game? He said, well, it'd be fun. I, said, oh, yeah, I can see that. That'd be really good. He said, the audience will love it. I said, but it seems like the situation within the plot pretty grim between both sides of this coin, the apes and meetings. I don't know. I know in the First World War, I think it was the First World War, could have been the second, there was a soccer match between the British and the German in no man's land because it was Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve or something. said, so, oh, they, they could come to some sort of truce, but I don't think the apes are in the white flag, let's have a truce business. So he says, that's what the sort of thing we need. I said, yeah, basically. He said, yeah. I said, I don't know much about baseball. And he said, no, because you're Australian. I said, yeah, that's right. He said, maybe that's the problem. Uh Uh-oh. That's not a problem that's easily solved, is it? I could read a lot about baseball. I could do a lot of, watch a lot of baseball movies, but I think I'm going to still be an Australian at the end of the day. And I did later on marry an American woman, who I'm still married to after all these years. And that, that was too little, too late. And we walked out with our days, and, or at least Terry's days. And then as usual, I, they weren't. I had like this and like that. And the studio lost interest, change of management. The guy that I was doing with got fired. And nobody wants to do somebody else's idea. But then enough years passed, and it was a great idea to do it. Oh, like I say, we, Oliver and Don, had the idea first, and it never came to pass. And same with my Black Panther script, same thing. The exact same story. I, I, had a, I remember having dinner with Wesley Snipe to play Black Panther. Now, then he got arrested on tax evasion charges. Yeah, but nothing happens. So the Black Panther that was made, we had this huge business, so I guess somebody did it right. Would have been the story I wanted to do, but by then the whole of Hollywood changed. You could have a white guy my age writing Black Panther, and, and that's great. I'm complaining about that. It's just a vastly different landscape. Probably if we'd have made my Black Panther, it would be on the forbidden list or whatever. I don't know, but it didn't happen. And some things did get made. So that's Hollywood. You know. it's, every Hollywood career ends in tears. So I thought, time to leave, time to go eventually. I'm going to write a novel. So I did. Yeah, I was curious. How did I Am Pilgrim come about? And, and how was that experience writing it? a fantastic book? Very thick, too. You definitely put a lot of work into it. Yeah, yeah. I know we were, my parents had passed away now, but my parents, we got you know, very young, very sick. And my wife and I decided the best thing for them was to take them back to Australia where my brother lived, my, my only sibling. And because better environments, so we had four children under the age of six two elderly parents down to Australia and anyway, partway through riding pill. I, I lost my brother, my mother and my father all within one year. And it was tough because they hadn't finished. No, we'd never finished it. I was fighting that to death. But I didn't know that, of course. So I go down to Australia. I wrote a great story. Even my agent thought it was a great story. Then head of the agent. It's, it's just wonderful. I said, because you never stuff out. Oh, yeah. What's wrong with it? And yeah, highly accomplished piece of work. 
that before Julia Roberts, but enough. And Julia's a great woman and a great actress. And her agent at the time recommended that it not be a good movie to make. Agents, there are good agents and bad agents. It's not the best advice that she ever got. But if you don't take the advice, then you better find a new agent. Anyway, never got paid. And so that was very frustrating. And I, I was writing up the screenplays and only a lot of money. And I needed these children, totally bare. It's not cheap. Anyway, I said to my wife one day, I said, I've, I said, no. When I went to Hollywood, and she'd worked at Paramount, so she knew the business. And I said, when I first went to Hollywood, they were making, you know, I, I don't cut figures, Mike, but let's say it's 140 movies a year. I said, I don't think I made 70 this year. Now it's even less. I said, your chances of getting anything made are diminishing by the year. Because I'm not interested in just writing money. You get paid anyway, whether it's made or not. On the list, you get quite a lot of money. And I said, but I'm not interested. And I'm, I like things being made, good, bad, or indifferent. I, I think that marks the passing of my life. I say, oh, yeah, that was the year I did this. That was the year I did this. You know, what are you going to do? I said, I, the days that numbered, I had no idea how Hollywood would finally embrace some sort of diversity. People like myself were not going to be the beneficiaries of that. I'm certainly not complaining. It's just the way things evolved. And Hollywood's always been a very, not the most enlightened place to say. And, uh, so I said, well, I'm going to write a novel. Not the NRR. It's what I'd always wanted to do. I said, might as well write a novel. And if it's a good novel, they'll sell it to the movies and maybe they'll make it as a movie. Hopefully, it'll be a really good novel. Oh, yeah. Novels make a lot of money. I said, I don't I guess they do. Yeah. Said, oh, Bible seems to sell really well. Year in, year out. Somebody's doing all right. I said, yeah. We see bestsellers and all of that. I said, oh, okay. So, anyway, off we went. And what I thought would take a couple of years to go long, but I had to stop and do some screenplays in the meantime. But because, you know, you don't get paid anything. I'm just writing it on spec. Then, as I say, my, my family passed away. I, if I were to reread, which I have never done and have no intention of it doing, I, I don't need to be reminded of all my failures. They're embedded in my memory. I don't need to read them again. And that's, I don't know, I'm not reading. But if I were to, I could tell you where each of those people died. Because I remember those days, so they're not the sort of thing you're ever going to forget. They're deeply they drilled into your soul. So I plugged on under very different circumstances. Plugged on it, got out halfway through the book and thought it would be a good idea to expose it to both my agents and see what they thought. So anyway, I got a phone call from the head of literary Lynn Morris, different person now, and she said to me, should I read it? I said, oh, yeah, what do you think? She said, do you want a career as an international best-selling? Because if you do, you've got it. I said, that's great. Terrific. Thank you very much. She said, yeah, we'll go out with it. They never buy partials, manuscripts, but they'll buy this. So I said, fantastic. Got fine. Top white. I said, it's off to the races for us. There will be drink a beer and play Skittles for the rest of our life. And she saw oh, wonderful. Hey, this has been in variety, like how much people get paid. So again, I'm not telling anything that's too far. You know, it's not particularly confidential, but it was well over 1.2 million a script. As lots of people in Hollywood, they're writing three a year. I don't know how they do that. They, okay. It was a lot, of, especially back before Pilgrim. So anyway, they called me from the agency. They said, great, it's great. We've got a U.S. sale. Simon Schuster got So, fantastic. They're going to pay you in advance. I said, that's good. How much? They said, $80,000. I said, oh, yeah, that's good. I got, said, yes, of course. I got a phone. I said to my wife, this is going to 
change things a bit. She said, what do you mean it's going to change things? I said, I think we're going to have to start looking at the price of things before we buy them. I said, I think that would be a good start. She stuck with it. She, it was hard. It was hard. We had to adapt our lives to a new reality, just like when I was radio producing side of things. I, I wrote a screenplay for nothing. Promise enough. And with four kids, different situation. $80,000 is, I'm not saying it's not a lot of money, but it wasn't enough, let's say that, compared to what I, what I could learn. I plugged away, I finished it, and, oh, yeah, it was well-received, became an international bestseller, a critical acclaim, and I got incredibly depressed. That's life. Everybody thinks you're going to celebrate, go and sing from the rooftops, crack open the champagne. No. When I knew that what it was, or I had a clear idea of what it was going to do, but internationally, very difficult experience, Mike, a really difficult experience. It's that Chinese proverb, be careful what you wish for, you might get it. I'd wished all my life, since being a five-year-old, to write a best-selling novel. I got it, but I had no idea what to do. I had fulfilled my ambition. I thought, what do I do now? I'd set a goal that seemed impossible for a young kid you know, getting off a boat from England. And I was there, left this huge hole in my heart. I'd lived with that ambition. One day, one day, that day arrived. And I'd seen enough of Hollywood to know one thing, that more people are ruined by success than are ever ruined by fate. And I thought, and I said to the British publisher, and he's a very dear friend of mine now, I said, I knew in those days my life would never be the same. Not because I'd be recognized, God forbid. I've been in the bar with Tom Cruise, seen the ride. I've had to run across Green Park in London, Mel Gibson being pursued by hordes of people, and it was at the absolute height of his fame. I had lunch, very famous. And I nobody in the right mind, not even them half. But I knew that my whole psychology would be very different because I'd had this ambition and I'd lived it. I'd somehow stumbled my way across country. Finding <laughs> what I was looking for. Chris says, What happens tomorrow? I didn't know eventually. Wrote another book, but it was, it's counterintuitive. You know, it was vastly different to what I thought, vastly different. And it took me a while to center myself again, as the actors would say, to find an equilibrium that the kids say I never had, because I never had. You know, I I mentioned before, they're not that, that, I mean, I love them unconditionally and absolutely, but I'm under no illusion. If I was going to write nice people, I can promise you, mate, they would not be based on my four children because I'm very frank in their assessments of their fathers. So, yeah, so that was Pilgrim. It was, when I look back on her, that was a link in a very long chain. Other people would look back and say, God, he got lucky. And they may well be right. I, Divine providence blessed my life, and I'm grateful for that every day. I have lived what I wanted. I wanted to be a writer, and I did it. What more can anybody ask, really? Healthy children, great marriage, and I lived my ambition, and I'm still living it. So, yeah, I'm thankful. Thankful for everybody that's bought one of the books. They say that writing a book is very difficult, but I imagine writing a second book has to be even tougher because now you're judging yourself against what you did before. Yeah, yeah. All the stories, I think with both books, and I'm sure for every future book I write, I go into an altered state. You mentioned a movie, it's perfect for it. I go into a different reality. I live with those people. I think about it 24-7. A problem, a narrative problem I can't solve. 
it's the last thing I think of before I fall asleep. And that you'd be surprised how the unconscious mind works, that you wake up in the body with a solution. And uh, so I become much more of a monk-like figure and very short-tempered, not the easiest person to be around. So it's always, it's not, it, look, it's not cancer research. It is uh, in the scale of human endeavor, whether I write a book or not, it's not that significant, except for one thing, it is to me, means everything to me that I try as hard as I possibly can. And near enough is not good enough. In Locust, in the year of the Locust, I think there's 260,000 published. Now that's about two and a half times a normal. I wrote 1,070,000. It's at the bottom of the, at the, on the Word documents, it'll tell you how many words you, that's an awful thing to confront. So I threw away 800,000 words. That's me. That's Terry waking up in the morning and saying, I'm a bit improved, but that's how I roll. I don't like that near enough's good enough. Now, that doesn't mean that it's a well-written book. All it means is I went as far as I could. I know both of those. I gave it everything. I left it all on the field. And to me, that's very important. That's one of the things I've tried to pass on to the children, that if you're going to do something, then by God, you better commit. You'd better lay your life down for this. So, you know, I have a daughter who's both at college and training the hope joining the Australian Olympic equestrian team. I have a son who is 16, plays off scratch at golf. I have another daughter who at the University of Amsterdam doing very well. And, and the son who, God help, wants to write the narrative video games because he thinks movies are finished. Maybe he's right. Hitler, Adolf, their father Adolf, drives them off. And when they complain, I say the same thing to them, but sure, I'm tough on you. But I tell you this, no India is tough on you as I am myself. So get over it. I beat myself up every hour of every day. So don't look here for sympathy. Go talk to your mom. And they do. So they all get enough. But yeah, it's hard to write locusts. It's going to be, I, I'm contracted to write Pilgrim 2. I'm in the midst of developing that. I know what it's going to be. I know I go into that different reality. I know it's going to be unpleasant. I know it's going to be challenging. And I know that I'm going to find out more about myself than I'd really like to know about my own shortcomings. You start off at this, you think it'd be good to be Shakespeare or Escott Fitzgerald, Hemingway. And somewhere along the line, you think, I don't think that's going to happen. But you never know, do you? You just might turn the corner because, let's face it, Shakespeare wrote some not so good plays. Not all of Hemingway's books were great. F. Scott wrote one great. The others, eh, they wouldn't have that halo effect. So, yeah, I journey on. More in hope than certain. But yeah, you're right. It is tough. But look, so's punching rivets on the General Motors production. That's tough. I go to bed. But I go to bed and I think, that was good. I did that well. Nobody's saying that. Saying, I punched those rivets really good. Or didn't we laser cut that panel properly? No. Listen to me and I. Oh, and rightfully so. A lot of people be saying, you've had a charmed life. And I have. And uh, I'm quite happy to admit that it is not quite what it seems from the outside. Different. It's different in the lunatic. You know, of writing a book. Mr. Hayes, thank you so much for your time. This was such a pleasure talking with you. Oh, thank you very much. I, yeah, I, I don't get much of a chance myself to, to discuss things like, yeah, no, it's not a common thing. It's nice to be forced to reflect on your career. 
and, and look back and say, hey, if you look at it, if you just look at the mountain peaks of it, it was interesting. Like, thank you very much for leaving out the worst of the valley where we skipped over there all the failures. So, so that was good. Fantastic. I, I, I hope that it was enjoyable for you and for your listeners and everybody else. I hope they, when they go to a bookstore and they see some poor person's name on it, they'll think, eh, that's all she must have tried really hard. People ask me all the time, what's the worst book you've ever read? I, I never, but I'll tell you why. Anybody that wrote the first word and wrote that towards the end, they've got my undying admiration. It might not be a book that I'd like to write or necessarily one that I'd like to read. It's not a bad They say there are no bad dogs. There are no bad dogs. So thank you for this opportunity. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. It was such a pleasure. I hope we can do it again sometime. You bet. You bet. You bet.